Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. I uh, would like to welcome everyone that's here in the room, but also those who are watching remotely. Uh, it's with great delight that um, I'm introducing uh, Dr. David Gladstone to speak today. Um, I'm first going to read our required conflict of interest statement. Uh, David J. Gladstone does not have any financial interests. He reports that he does not intend, and probably won't, uh, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and he attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, at the end of the presentation, we will be taking questions and answers, uh, and those watching remotely will have an opportunity to ask questions as well. Uh, I, and it's with great pleasure and delight that I introduce David. Uh, he has had a long and distinguished career here at Dartmouth. For those of you who don't know him, let me just wax eloquent for one moment. He graduated from MIT in 1989 with a doctorate in experimental physical chemistry. Uh, he moved to Harvard for his postdoctoral work in medical physics and biophysics, at which point he developed his lifelong interest in uh, medical physics and radiobiology. Um, winning first place in the 1990 Young Investigators Symposium at the 32nd Annual Meeting of the American Association of Physicists and Medicine, uh, beginning a very illustrious career. He remained at Harvard on faculty as an instructor of radiation therapy physics uh, through, for six years, developing expertise in clinical and experimental radiation biology, also teaching and mentoring doctoral and medical students, and averaging one first author publication per year. Uh, which is something that I think we could all aspire. Uh, he was recruited to Dartmouth in 1996 as Chief of Clinical, Phys Chief of Clinical Physics, a title he holds um, to this day. And over the ensuing 18 years, uh, he has shouldered more and more responsibilities in a variety of realms. Uh, he is basically head of clinical operations for the physics group um, in radiation oncology. <clears throat> as Chief of Clinical Physics, he has a long stream of firsts in a variety of uh, clinical venues uh, throughout New England. Uh, and he also has a variety of really phenomenal research interests. Uh, we've heard him speak before here at Grand Rounds regarding Cherenkov radiation, um, which um, has really been uh, Dartmouth's, uh, some of Dartmouth's most avant-garde work uh, in the uh, physics and optics community uh, in the last several years. Um, beyond his clinical acumen and extraordinary talents in research and teaching, uh, he is also a bit of a renaissance man. Many of you may not know that he um, does things like restore vintage antique automobiles. Uh, he um, has uh, constructed a five-string viola for fun. Uh, <laughs> He plays old-time Appalachian folk music with his wife and son, and they often tour around West Virginia and do really fun stuff like that. So without further ado, um, I'm delighted uh, to welcome back David Gladstone. David. Well, thank you um, for the kind invitation to um, review some work that uh, we've done here at Dartmouth. Um, the, the work I'll be discussing today is actually unique um, worldwide. Uh, we are the only institution um, to date uh, who has attempted to and actually succeeded in synchronizing uh, the radiation beam to the cardiac cycle. And um, so I will be describing what we do in our not spare time, but time to spare. Um, this, this work uh, was really quite complex, um, took the input from a lot of collaborators throughout the center and, and really describes, um, this list of collaborators really describes why it was possible to do this at Dartmouth. Um, we're small enough uh, so that everybody is um, intellectually curious and engaged in uh, everybody else's ideas and willing to help. And so we've got hands in here from uh, radiation oncology to pathology, uh, pediatric cardiology, uh, muscle physiologists, biostatisticians, and uh, ultrasonographers um, from the cardiology group. Um, full disclosure, uh, the work was funded 
in part by an American Cancer Society grant um, that was a uh, seed funding grant uh, through the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Um, once we got preliminary data, then Varian Medical Systems did uh, fund some of the work that was back in 2003. Um, and as stated before, I have absolutely no financial interest in what I'm going to talk to you about today, and um, neither does anyone else. Um, animal studies, it's a non-product, okay, this is, this is really pre-clinical stuff. Um, animal studies were approved by the Dartmouth Eye Cut Committee, and um, any human studies, which I don't believe I'll be talking about today, now there are some human data in here, um, they were approved by Dartmouth IRB. Um, there's no off-label use since there's no product to have a label on. Um, so an introduction, um, radiation-induced um, heart disease is observed secondary to treatment of Hodgkin's disease, esophagus, and left breast um, in normal clinical practice. And the uh, heart disease, the radiation-induced heart disease would include um, pericarditis, uh, coronary artery disease, valvular heart disease, myocardial infarction, and rhythm abnormalities, and I suppose the list could be extended um, if only I were an expert in cardiology. So looking backwards, um, I actually pulled a textbook off of the uh, shelf from the Radiation Oncology Conference Room on uh, clinical radiation therapy. And in that book from 1950, we get the conventional view that heart muscle is relatively resistant to Röntgen rays and seems to have about the same degree of sensitivity as smooth muscle. Accumulated evidence shows that Röntgen rays, even in amounts greater than that used normally for treatment of patients, do not appear to have any effect on animal hearts. And the evidence seems to show that hearts can be damaged by very large quantities of Röntgen rays, but probably not by doses on the order of those used in patients. So where does that experience come from? In the 50s, um, we did not have megavoltage x-rays, but instead, um, people were relying quite heavily on brachytherapy implants. So this uh, slide on the left is from Keynes as far back as 1938, showing the distribution of uh, radium encapsulated needles, which were inserted into tissue. Um, radium is actually, I believe, an uh, alpha emitter, but the daughter product is radon, which then has uh, approximately one megavolt um, gamma rays emitted from that daughter product. So if one encapsulates uh, radium inside of hermetically sealed needles. Uh, you can put it inside a tissue and actually get a very nice dose distribution. Um, also, you only have to calibrate a needle once since the half-life is around 1,400 years. Um, so quite a convenient source in its day. Um, however, there, in this 1950s textbook, I do quote a base um, report by Ross where a patient was implanted uh, with such a, a radium needle implant and on removal of the needles, uh, one needle was lost. And a uh, patient goes on to um, develop dyspnea at four and a half months, died after three years, and on autopsy, the needle was finally found. Um, the pericardium and muscle were replaced by uh, fibrosis and necrotic tissue. So even with the um, relatively uh, benign findings of, of, of the statements above and, and that would be quoted by any of the um, elder radiation oncologist uh, that the heart was basically thought to be insensitive, there was a nod that yes, we, we could do damage with radiation um, given enough. So going not quite as far back um, to 1991, uh, there's a nice review article by Schultz and Hector um, talking about radiation-induced heart disease secondary to Hodgkin's breast and seminoma treatments, basically any time the mediastinum is involved in the radiation fields. The following year, 1992, the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group, a multi-institutional study group that uh, Dartmouth is a full member of, um, publishes a consensus paper um, on a conference specifically about radiation injury to the heart. And the um, consensus was that whenever possible, we should reduce the amount of radiation that the heart receives incidental to treatment, and of course, that more research is necessary. That's an astounding finding for a research group, right? Um, so the suggestions were to look at um, acute subclinical effects, find out if they are predictive of long-term complications. There's so far as no smoking gun on that uh, on that question. 
um, asking, is radiation-induced heart disease correlated to the left ventricular volume, which is irradiated, or is it more correlated to the um, nerve uh, nodes that are going down the anterior surface of the heart? Um, could also be attributed to vascular damage uh, along that anterior surface. Um, there still was the wonderment about if there is a dose response curve, I believe still not um, fully uh, developed literature there. And um, also the question as to whether there's an interaction between uh, pulmonary and cardiac function in, uh, in, in, in the realm of heart disease. So five years later, um, by 1997, a uh, year after I left the Joint Center, um, there was a paper published by Harris et al. from the uh, Beth Israel Deaconess um, suggesting that deep inspiration breath hold could be used to spare the heart during irradiation of left-sided breast. And um, as those who are in the field know, um, at long last we're actually doing those, uh, those kind of maneuvers in the clinic. Um, at the time that the paper was published, there was no technology that made that convenient to do. So it's taken this many years um, to go forward. So now by 2003, um, Marx and coworkers at Duke um, published a study of uh, 144 patients showing that um, early perfusion defects um, as measured by single photon emission computed tomography um, showed that uh, there are defects at following a course of radiation therapy um, for left-sided breast. And now by 2014, there's a um, joint statement by the European Association of Cardiovascular Imaging and the American Society for Echocardiography uh, stating that cardiac toxicity is one of the most concerning side effects of anti-cancer therapy. Now that's a broad statement, including um, many toxic drugs that are used for chemotherapy, but certainly the radiation oncology group is not excused from, uh, from that statement. Um, so heart disease um, after treatment of breast uh, with radiation, uh, basically we're we have observed higher rates of chest pain, coronary artery disease, and myocardial infarction. Now, these data come from uh, Marx's paper, and you see the p-values are quite good. Um, so these are the, the, the top group of data is from uh, acute, that would be very short-term findings after a course of radiation therapy. And at 12 years post-RT, <coughs> Um, stress test abnormalities show 59% uh, in left-sided patients treated for left-sided breast cancer versus 8% for right-sided. And then death from all cardiac causes, um, overall we've got 3.5% for left-sided women, 2% treated to the right side, and after 20 years that grows to 65 and 3.5%, basically a factor of two greater risk for death from cardiac causes. Um, after being treated to left-sided breast um, for cancer. So going back to the idea of the deep inspiration breath hold, um, the idea is to use respiratory motion uh, to reduce dose to the heart. And so in the colored graph below, you can see if the diaphragm moves down, then the um, heart should move out of the um, geometrical position where we'd be treating uh, the, the breast and chest wall. And um, to clarify that, here are some axial scans showing on top a uh, CT scan of, and the heart is, is drawn there for a patient under free breathing conditions versus deep inspiration breath hold on the bottom uh, plot. And you can see clearly that there's, there's far less uh, heart tissue in the field that would be uh, treated. So let's throw some dose on this picture. Um, picture on the left, is a patient, uh, actually this, the same patient is shown in left and right. And uh, on the left is the dose distribution shown for deep inspiration breath hold. And on the top right is a quite complex multi-field plan um, intended to treat the full breast tissue plus the internal mammary nodes. Um, and you can see the dose lines, the colored dose lines are extending right into heart tissue even from the quite complex plan. If we look at the data in the table on the right-hand side, um, the deep tangents, that would be a similar uh, geometry to what is, was used in the DIVH scan in the upper left-hand corner, um, in free breathing mode gives uh, 30 gray 
uh, mean dose heart as compared to VMAT, our probably most complicated technique goes down to 26 gray. And then this uh, graphic shown on the right-hand side is down to 19 gray. But then if we just introduce the deep breathing uh, technique, we're down to 2.8 gray, which is well underneath our target dose of keeping mean, mean heart dose under 4 gray. Um, so just this uh, relatively simple idea of only turning the beam on when the patient takes a deep breath um, results in a rather dramatic uh, effect of dose reduction to the heart proper. And I won't go into details of the dose volume histogram shown in the uh, lower left-hand side. Um, unfortunately, uh, in 2013, a paper is published by um, Zellers from Johns Hopkins. And uh, what we're looking at here is the um, SPECT per, uh, determined perfusion uh, of the heart post-radiation therapy to the left-hand side. Um, to various portions. So the dark uh, squares are using the automatic um, breath control. So that would be the deep inspiration breath hold. And the lighter squares are no breath hold technique. And basically, there is no statistical difference in any portion of the heart investigated um, for 29 women in each arm of the study. Um, now, hopefully the data set was um, simply too small to draw an absolute conclusion and we're not actually wasting our time with deep inspiration breath hold, but even in the worst case, um, one would still postulate that lower dose to a normal structure is better, and so it is probably still worth doing un until truly proven otherwise. So my goal of getting into this um, actual topic of, of interest, which is gating the radiation beam to the cardiac cycle proper, um, was really spurred by, a, um, by two different um, potential uh, paths to reduce heart damage. One would be geometric sparing, that is turn the beam on when the heart is in the optimal position outside of the radiation field. Now I thought that was trivial, so I went on to number two. Um, I am naive at times. So number two is radiobiologic sparing. And this is the thing that I thought was um, actually had a little more interest. So the idea is to turn the beam on when the heart is least sensitive to radiation. And this type of mechanism could be driven by fluctuations in um, oxygen concentration or uh, potentially calcium ions uh, in the heart as a function of, of uh, where we are in the cardiac cycle. So the idea didn't pop out of thin air. It came from actually reading the literature. And this is a um, review paper uh, done in Jay Zwire's group um, at Hopkins. And um, Dr. Kupasami, who's with us today, uh, I believe was directly involved in these measurements. So please excuse me if I mangle my description. But um, basically, the way this worked was the heart was um, taken out of a rat hooked up to plumbing, as you see on the left-hand side, so it's kept under pressure. And then you can get the thing beating again. So this is known as the working rat heart model. Now, if you inject not just saline fluid, but a fluid filled with a um, probe, which is sensitive to oxygen, then one can use fast electron paramagnetic resonance spectroscopy techniques to measure the amount of oxygen in the myocardium proper, both during uptake and during clearance of this marker, which is going through the perfusate. <laughs> and looking at the graph in the upper right-hand corner from this, uh, from this experiment, um, you can see that up to a factor of 20 difference in oxygen tension is observed in the heart between end systole and end diastole, with the greatest amount of oxygen being present at end diastole, the heart is, is uh, opening up and filling with blood, and the least amount of oxygen at end systole, and the heart is compressed down. Um, I talked to Dr. Kupasami about this, and he said, well, yeah, we saw it, and it was cute to be able to see that we could do it, but it had absolutely no practical significance. But that's because he wasn't in radiation oncology. So if one applies a factor of 20 to muscle at rest oxygen tension, so muscle at rest is approximately 35 millimeters of oxygen, and if you divide that by 20, you get down into the single digits, which is well known in the radiation oncology community 
to be hypoxic conditions. Now, tissue is less sensitive to radiation when it is hypoxic, and that is because uh, oxygen will interact chemically with any bonds which are broken by the radiation event, and so it will fix the damage and make it make the tissue less able to repair it. So the hypothesis is if we turn the beam on at end systole when oxygen is low, perhaps we can spare tissue from damage. And so I've just preceded myself. That's what this slide says. Um, now, second mechanism. Why do I need a second mechanism? Well, one, because uh, one idea is never enough. Two, because this whole oxygen measurement was already contentious in the EPR community, to my understanding. And good common sense tells you that oxygen doesn't fluctuate by a factor of 20, right? But I, although I do believe the measurements. Uh, so another possible mechanism. Calcium ions fluctuate by a factor of 10 from systole to diastole. And the concentration is on the order of 10 to the minus 6 moles per liter. And so the idea here is that at end systole, when calcium is high, because it's the calcium ion channels which are being used to drive the muscular contraction, um, the calcium ions could scavenge hydroxyl radicals from the surrounding medium, forming calcium hydroxide plus or the um, calcium hydroxide salt, um, but with the caveat that the constant of solubility product is 0.025 uh, moles per liter, which is far in excess of the concentrations that we're talking about by physiological um, mechanisms. But um, I'll leave it there for an interesting idea. So now, how are we going to synchronize to the heartbeat? So these days, instead of using radium needles to, to uh, treat, we're using linear accelerators. And um, the linear accelerator, at its very heart, is nothing but an overgrown vacuum tube which, of course, you're familiar with from your stereo in the living room, right? Mm -hmm. So the um, vacuum tube is a very simple device. You heat up a cathode and boil electrons off of it. And if you have a positive voltage at the anode with respect to the cathode, then the electrons will be driven towards that anode. Now, if you introduce a grid, in between the cathode and anode, you can alter the voltage on the grid. And so now you have a valve, basically, for electrons. And you can turn the circuit on and off. Well, the electron gun in the linear accelerator works exactly on that principle. And so our accelerators have a gridded electron gun. And so we can choose to turn those electrons on and off at any time we like. The linear accelerator itself is not a continuous device, but it's pulsed. So we've got five microsecond bursts of electrons being injected into the accelerator over a time span of five milliseconds. So this cycle repeats itself over and over again when we have the beam on. And so all we need to do is stamp on this signal for the electron gun, and we can turn the accelerator off at any time that we want to. And note these time scales, five milliseconds, are much faster than physiologic time scales. So here's our control loop. We have our um, rat patient volunteer lying on the table underneath the electron cone. And, well, they, he signed the consent. And we've got um, alligator clips hooked up to the four legs. And those alligator clips are sending signal to an EKG machine. Um, we have a pulse discriminator, which uses the QRS uh, waveform and the EKG as a trigger. Um, it's going to apply a phase shift so we can uh, move from that uh, QRS signal to any time point we like in the cardiac cycle. And it's going to send an output pulse back to the linear accelerator to tell it when it's OK to turn the beam on. So when we did this um, experiment, this was 1997, and uh, gating of the LINAC was only a pipe dream, which was etched into the electrical schematics of the machine. But there was no device, as there is today. Um, but today, instead of, so we, we, what we did was we, we grabbed the electron program card out of the console at the LINAC, threw some chips in it to modify it to accept our signal, and then we were able to turn the beam on and off whenever we liked. Um, these days, we would simply take the output of our, of our um, system and send it to the uh, RPM 
which is the commercial um, gating uh, control of the accelerator, and uh, life would be actually much easier. So I was able to uncover um, the original block diagram of this electrical device, this pulse discriminator, um, and it shows clearly the EKG signal drawn backwards because it was all from bad memory uh, of the person who did it, and the idea of making these pulses come out uh, triggered um, to, the, to the EKG signal. Um, and then there was some shorthand here for what we're going to do with either to gate or not to gate, uh, depending on what the question is. And here on the bottom right-hand corner is the um, actual uh, device which we, which we built showing the electrical components inside. It's not a very crowded device, but um, the whole thing works in the end. So if we hook up an oscilloscope to the circuit, um, this is the rat's EKG signal under anesthesia conditions. Um, these rats were given a xylosine ketamine cocktail. And um, to say that this is a messed up uh, cardiac signal would be an understatement. But um, needless to say, uh, you can still make out the QRS uh, waveform here up top, which should be a nice clean signal. But again, the anesthesia interferes with that. And then end of the T wave is down here. And it's that end of T wave which signals end of uh, systole, or end of contraction stroke. And so, and here's our control signal going out to the linear accelerator. Um, so the first chore was to show that uh, this thing actually works. So we placed, um, in those days, silver halide film underneath the rat. And if we turn the megavoltage beam on, you can see the shadow of the heart. If we outline the shadow of the heart and apply the simple volumetric equation um, of 4 thirds pi r squared, uh, of course, we're measuring area, so you can do a little mathematics there, then one can determine what is the approximate volume of the heart depending on where the gate is delivered. And so if we divide the heart, the cardiac cycle into 10 phases and plot volume of heart determined off of the silver halide film, you get a um, plot which actually uh, gives you some reasonable values of approximately 1.4 cubic centimeters uh, at uh, approximately diastole and uh, one and a quarter cc's at uh, end systole. So we've now proven that our circuit works. Um, the next nasty question is, well, if you gate the beam to the cardiac cycle, are you going to affect something you don't want to, like tumor growth? So we implanted tumors into the legs of, uh, of some rats. And here's the control group, which is left untreated, and, and the tumor is just left to grow. And what we're plotting here is tumor size over time uh, after <coughs> implantation uh, uh, of the cells. And then we've got, on the upper right-hand corner, um, a set of rats who were irradiated uh, to 15 gray to the tumor without any gating, just the normal way we would irradiate. Uh, compared to gated to end diastole, gated to end systole, and fortunately there is no effect on the flank tumor. So we can eliminate this as a, uh, this control of the machine as a negative for um, treating tumors. We know that we can still affect the same <laughs> clinical result. So now the good experiment. Um, we've got four groups of rats uh, that we are going to follow. One is a control group, um, not receiving any irradiation. Another who are going to get 20 gray uh, directly to the heart without benefit of gating. And then two other groups, one at uh, 20 gray gated to end of systole, where we believe there's less oxygen, uh, and 20 gray delivered at end of diastole, where there should be the most oxygen, according, according to the um, EPR studies. At 60 days, um, we attempted to do a functional analysis with echocardiography, and we looked at um, cardiac performance. And then hearts were harvested, um, isn't that a kind word? Uh, and they were cut and stained for um, collagen formation, which is a condition uh, preceding fibrosis. So we used um, the radiation technique was uh, one of uh, Lochner and workers uh, modified uh, a bit. I don't think they had the benefit of um, imaging, so their fields were a bit small, at least for our rats. Um, so we're using a six megavolt electron beam, uh, approximately two centimeter diameter circle. And the dose was prescribed to the 80% isodose surface because I had only been gone from Boston for a year, and that's what they did. 
there's good reason for it. It's so that actually the prescription dose covers the volume of interest. Um, so here's the three-dimensional view of the dose distribution as um, calculated in the Pinnacle Treatment Planning System. Uh, in red is the heart outlined, and um, the red isodose line is the prescription line. And what you can see is that even with this aggressive normalization strategy, uh, we are under-treating the heart if it is actually a, an organ to be targeted. So the other observation is that when the heart goes into systole and contracts, it will be sampling a higher dose region than when it is at end of diastole and at its full expansion. So functional analysis via echocardiography. Um, this is the uh, echocardiogram shown. And we simply measure the diameter of the, of the um, wall of the heart at end diastole and at end systole and take a simple ratio. And then we have the shortening fraction, which can be used as a metric of cardiac performance. Histological analysis, we um, sliced the heart into sections. And here you can see a section of normal myocardial tissue. And on the right-hand side is um, tissue after delivery of 20 gray and 60 days gone by. And you can see that under um, trichrome blue, there's some staining of the collagen, uh, which is, again, the prefibrotic marker. Um, we can use the Chalkley uh, point count technique, where we, anytime the grid uh, superimposed on, the, on a high magnification image crosses a blue point, then we count a red dot. And then you can simply get a, uh, a, a percentage of tissue sample, um, which has the stain uptake. So uh, here are the histology results. Um, the 95% uh, confidence intervals are shown. So this is percent collagen formation for normal hearts. Hearts are rated, irradiated at end systole when oxygen is supposed to be low. Um, hearts are radiated without benefit of gating. And then hearts are radiated at end diastole where oxygen is supposed to be high. And you can see that there is indeed a monotonic increase in uh, collagen formation with increasing oxygen tension in, in the muscle, uh, going back to the EPR studies again. Um, so the problems with this study is, uh, as I mentioned before, the dosimetry did not guarantee homogeneous dose with respect to end systole or end diastole. The dose was actually higher at end systole because the heart was sampling the higher dose region, and yet we saw less uh, collagen formation. So that's, that's an extremely encouraging finding. Um, functional studies in the rat were extremely difficult to do and ended up being non-conclusive, so I, I'm not showing you data from that. Um, and single fraction, uh, at the time we did the experiment, high dose single fraction was unlikely to be delivered in the clinic. These days, it's getting more and more relevant because of stereotactic body radiosurgery um, to the lung, for example, uh, and, and other spots of the body. So the, the 20 gray single fraction isn't quite as irrelevant as it, uh, as it could have been um, deemed at the time that this was done. So we went from rats to the um, pig model. Um, we were using 30-day-old pigs. And uh, we tried to address the issues of dose conformality or dose homogeneity as well as the um, fractionation scheme. So here we've developed a three-field conformal uh, plan. So now the dose to the heart is, is uh, quite even and well covered under any condition. Um, very little change of dose versus spatial distribution in the heart. And um, we delivered uh, six MV photons, uh, three and three-quarter gray um, in times 10. And here, the normalization is just the 98%, and we have full coverage. So nice conformal plan. Uh, stroke volume versus dose. Uh, we wanted to find out what the dose response was. So we started off with just a few pigs at the very beginning of the study and modulated only the dose delivered. And we showed that there was um, something of a linear uh, function of um, cardiac performance versus dose delivered, which is to be expected, but probably not exactly linear. I think the line comes about because we had such so few animals involved um, in that particular data set. But then uh, looking at uh, the heart function with the echocardiography at 60 days post-treatment, 
there is indeed a different scene between end systole and end diastole confirming the earlier histology data in the rat model. And while there doesn't appear to be much of a difference, it is actually 28% functional difference between end systole and end diastole, which could be clinically relevant to a patient. And again, this experiment was done under conditions where we were sure to induce dramatic damage to the heart because we wanted results. We did go on a fishing expedition for serum markers in the pig model, but I think the most dramatic effect here, looking at VEGF anyway, is seen in the control group, which leads one to believe that a lot more work is needed there to find radiation markers and their temporal variance in order to make some kind of sense out of this. But I just leave it out there as a tickler for anybody who's interested in this kind of thing, that this kind of work remains out there to be done. Now, finally, I alluded to the calcium model, and there's a method of investigating this as well. So these are rat myocyte cells, which are plated out in a Petri dish, and they are infused with a fluorescent marker, which glows as a function of the amount of calcium ion present. And so what we did was electrically stimulated the myocytes by passing a voltage over the Petri dish, and then look at the fluorescence microscopy as a function of time after that electrical pulse. So this gives us a model to investigate radiation damage as a function of time after these electrical pulses to the myocytes. And so this is a mechanism which is out there and can be tested should we get interested in doing so. So potential work to be done would be to continue the gated radiation experiments to get statistically relevant conclusions, especially in the pig model. It was very expensive. We had limited funds, and so we had a limited number of animals in that work. But the pig is regarded as the gold standard for doing heart experiments as compared to humans. So it would be worthwhile to try to tighten up that data. It would be also worthwhile to use lower doses, those which we would see actually in the clinic, secondary to treatment of malignancies, and follow the animals out to later time points to evaluate correlation of late effects to these modulations. Again, gating the radiation to the calcium ion concentration in the cell model would be worthwhile in elucidating that mechanism as a potential player. And, of course, the molecular markers, cytokines that are used today in biological work to get down to basic mechanisms would be quite a fruitful area of investigation. Finally, the duty cycle needs to be investigated for this effect. We were using very short 10 millisecond intervals just at end systole or end diastole, basically 10% duty cycle. That would not be very efficient in the clinical setting. So the obvious thing to ask is, could one split the cardiac cycle simply into two phases, 50% end diastole and 50% end systole, and can we still see a beneficial effect? Of course, that work needs to be done, presumably in animal models, before going into people. So for clinical implementation, then, we need to determine if the subclinical changes, that would be the perfusion studies noted before, are indicative of long-term toxicity. This is just echoing, again, RTOG conclusions. We need to test cardiac gating to see if we can modulate early perfusion changes in the clinic. If the latest data from Hopkins is correct and deep inspiration breath hold isn't enough, then perhaps we should be looking into seeing if we can change those perfusion observations by gating to the cardiac cycle in addition to or rather than breath hold, I would assume, in addition to. And again, long-term follow-up to determine correlation to late cardiac effects. Now, I throw this slide in because for a patient coming in multiple times to be treated for breast cancer over multiple weeks, one can easily imagine that putting EKG pads on the skin surface could be detrimental to skin health. And so this is a couch which is designed with sensors in it 
that can produce an EKG signal uh, without being in contact with the patient. So there are some uh, nice technologies out there to, uh, to accomplish that. So in conclusion, um, functional and histological changes were observed in the animal model. Um, they were dependent on the phase of beam gating to the cardiac cycle. The preliminary results that we have uh, published do support the oxygen hypothesis and suggest that cardiac sparing from radiation damage could be achieved by gating the beam to end systole. Um, again, we need to optimize uh, the technique and get a better understanding of the mechanisms and long-term effects um, before full clinical implementation. So at this point, that concludes my talk, and I'd be happy to entertain any questions you might have. Yes. Excellent work, David. And the oxygen data I measured it almost 24, 25 years ago, 1990, using whatever the technology we had at that time. And now we can do much better with all the instrumentation and the proof that we have. We can revisit it. I did not do that continue that again because I didn't have a good application need for it. So that's that's very nice that you have used it. I, I would love to see if it is due to oxygen. My understanding about radiation hitting a DNA causing a damage, and then oxygen making the damage permanent, if that's the theory of oxygen being radiation sensitive, within about half a second, when you give radiation, when the heart is in the, the end story, within about less than half a second, the oxygen is going to be high. There, so how, it, how will that be? Because it's not going to stay as hypoxic. The chemistry happens on the picosecond time scale. So uh, early experiments, I think actually published in Hall's textbook, point out that the oxygen enhancement ratio can be seen at extremely short time scales. And the cascade of events uh, which occur between the ionizing photon event and that of actual biological damage are, of course, complex, not fully understood yet. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it was shown already at very short time scales of picoseconds that the oxygen enhancement ratio can be observed. So um, this whole idea of, uh, of um, rapidly changing oxygen tension in, in muscle is, is hard to swallow to begin with. But I think it is real. The oxygen is used for ATP to ADP conversion in order to gain energy to actually make the muscle run. Um, the heart, the cardiac muscle is quite different from muscle at rest. And um, so it's reasonable, to, it's reasonable to believe that there is a fluctuation in oxygen tension. And if the chemistry is quite fast, uh, then the hydroxyl radical formation, which is the main method of, of damage from the radiation event, certainly that chemistry can go on quite rapidly in its immediate vicinity and be either modulated by presence or absence of oxygen. That, that, that's the hypothesis. Yes? The, the hypothesis is that the oxygen via the production of ATP contributes to decreased repair or something? I, I'm not getting that. Yeah, oxygen. So when the heart goes into end systole, the microvasculature is going to be under physical pressure by the contraction of the muscle. So the blood supply should be diminished by the contraction of the muscle. And at the same time, the muscle is using energy to do the contraction. So it is actually chemically using the oxygen in its own reservoirs. So at end systole, therefore, you have less oxygen available in the muscle proper. And therefore, it should be less sensitive to radiation. And just for this audience and for me, remind me why oxygenation sensitizes tissue. Uh, because if you break a bond, oxygen is a reactive species. And so when, if the oxygen is in the vicinity of a broken chemical bond, it will react with that bond uh, to make an oxygenated moiety. And oxygen bonds are quite strong, difficult to repair by, chem by uh, biological chemical mechanisms later on. So I always thought that was through a hydroxyl radical. That O2 can somehow or other. Well, the hydroxyl radical is actually blamed for doing the damage chemistry. So most of the tissue is, of course, water. 
And when the photons are coming or electrons are coming in to ionize the medium, you produce hydroxyl radicals, which then go on to break chemical bonds that actually matter to you. So that being DNA, cell walls, mitochondria. Uh, and so when those critical structures endure a broken bond, and if there is oxygen in the vicinity, it can bind to that dangling bond and hinder repair, repair at a later time period. Higher oxygen levels give you more hydroxyls. H2O plus O2 give you OH radicals. And the addition of the uh, uh, electrons is what sort of drives that forward. More oxygen, you have more hydroxyl radicals. Dr. David, uh, there are two aspects of this. Uh, considering the fluctuations in the oxygen level, the, the Myocytes might not fluctuate with 20%, uh, but the cardiac tissue as a whole might. So when you consider the radiation uh, as a problem, uh, the formation of collagen, uh, is it a function of variation of oxygen in the tissue or the myocytes? Because myocytes certainly cannot afford such a big variation. They'll succumb and die uh, if a 20-fold variation in their oxygen levels is is observed within the cells itself. But the tissue in general around it can certainly uh, accommodate this much variation. So the, the factor that collagen is produced, is it a function of this uh, uh, myocyte variation or the variation in the tissue according to you? Well, it's an excellent question. Um, the only thing I can tell you is that it is a function of when the beam was turned on during the cardiac cycle, um, exactly where the collagen was formed, be it, be it myocyte or muscle proper, I, I cannot say. This is kind of a simple uh, uh, question, David, uh, given the, the extraordinary complexity of what you've been doing. Um, the shape of the heart will be different in systole and diastole. Um, so the dosimetry may look different. You may have different amount of radiation going to the heart in one versus the other. You may have different amount of radiation going to the breast or to the lung. Uh, do you guys have any chance to actually think about changes in dosimetry, systole versus diastole? Um, no. At the time that we did this, this was this work started in 1997. We had no method for acquiring a 4D CT, especially at the rate of uh, rat heart. Um, these days it could be possible and would be worthwhile doing to investigate the dosimetric changes. But um, with the rat hearts, uh, I do speculate that the, the actual physical dose was higher at end systole, and yet still we saw less damage. You could model it in humans too. Could just yes. get some CT scans you know, in end systole versus diastole and just yep. model how the beam dosimetry would be altered. Yep. And that in and of itself might be an important clinical point. Right. Thank you. Hey, did you look at the vasculature panel for, the, for this irradiated parts? Uh, no, the histology was simply done staining for collagen at that point. So in thinking about the um, whether there's any compromise to the target tissue, is there any change in oxygen theoretically going on in the target tissue that is even measurable? Um, if there is, it would be inverse to the myocardium because um, at end systole, fresh blood has just been injected into the rest of the organism. Um, but the data that, the, the, that was the entire reason we took the data on the flank tumors um, was to eliminate the possibility that we were modulating um, effect on tumor elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But you'd need, I would think you'd need longer term follow-up to determine that for sure. The well, not in the rat model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, what, one way to rule out our role in the, the geometry or the shape change is to see the same effect in a TBI case, total body irradiation case. In that case, the geometry position of the heart during the two extremes doesn't matter. Excellent idea. And one is interested in low dose rate under TBI conditions anyway to spare the lung. So I suspect you could get away with gating to the heartbeat uh, in that uh, clinical condition. Um, I, sus I also suspect, however, that one would need 
to um, only investigate end systole versus not gated because if there's presumed excess damage at end diastole, you'd hardly want to demonstrate that in a human. The breath hold case also jumps off other, the other studies also. Will that kind of push the heart to a different position, right? Yeah, that's, that's the entire goal. So um, the, the work from the Joint Center showed that the heart should be significantly moved away from the edge of the radiation beam, and indeed it is. That's, that's borne out in uh, dosimetric studies that we've done on patients here at Dartmouth, uh, as well as through the rest of the world, people see this. So there is a move to invoke deep inspiration breath hold for left-sided breast treatment. But um, unfortunately, the Hopkins study of this year is showing that there's not a significant decrease in uh, the SPECT determined um, data. So it's a little disappointing. And um, hopefully, it's just not a well-developed data set. Yes? How sharp? Uh is this beam? Is it a very tight beam uh, for the radiation, or is it broad? In the um, in the work presented here, um, this was using an electron beam which scatters um, quite significantly. So um, the red isodose line here shows the intended prescription dose, but you can see that there is a significant penumbra all around that red prescription dose line. And that's due to electrons scattering inside of tissue. It's a difficulty with small fields and small animal models. But it's also a problem with the human. I, I, in other words, if the beam was tight enough, I'd take it for, say, treatment, radiation treatment for the breast, it's overhead. But if you angled the, the beam, that's one why you couldn't hit the, the tumor. Right. The, the, the beam indeed is angled. So um, you see the uh, light blue line traversing from uh, midline on the patient down to the lateral aspect, and that is the beam edge. And in this case, we're using uh, x-rays rather than electrons. The scatter is less uh, pronounced in a photon beam. And so we are already taking every advantage of, of that effect. Nonetheless, there will be some scatter from the irradiated tissue. Um, so a high energy electron produced in this region can travel down and still deliver some dose to the anterior wall of the heart. But of, of course, you see a, an extreme difference between this deep inspiration breath hold technique and an on fossil electron where, where there's significant exit dose in comparison. All right, well, if there's no further questions. Thank you.